From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we help get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on institutionalized sexism, the perspectives and policies that protect it, and the power of working mothers to change the game. We'll be talking with Sarah Lacey, author of A Uterus is a Feature, Not a Bug, The Working Woman's Guide to Overthrowing the Patriarchy. And as always, our phones are open. If you'd like to join in the conversation, we'd love to have you. Our number is one 844 That's 1-844-942-7866. So give us a call. We'd really love to have you join in. It's been a year where almost 5 million of us marched in cities around the world. And hashtag Me Too became a movement. More and more people are stepping up and coming out as feminists, many even proudly owning the title of unapologetic feminist, which weirdly is an overt nod to the fact that feminism is both an ironically radical act and seen as socially problematic, something for which the well-behaved should apologize. Understanding the dynamics behind our uncomfortable relationship with feminism is actually a critical part of understanding the systems of pervasive sexism in the workplace and the framework that's necessary to change it, which is why I am thrilled to have Sarah Lacey kick off 2018 with us. She's a groundbreaking journalist, a successful entrepreneur, and a mother who has written a book that's her call to action. A uterus is a feature, not a bug. The Working Woman's Guide to Overthrowing the Patriarchy is her rebuttal to institutionalized sex. And as somebody who just gobbled up every single word of it, I have to tell you an inspiring, informative, and really beautifully written chronicle of her own journey from what she terms a cool dude patriarchy enabler to a badass feminist warrior and the professional, economic, and social impact of this overdue paradigm shift. Um, Sarah's been covering technology news and entrepreneurship for over 15 years with stints at Business Week and TechCrunch before founding her own company while on maternity leave in 2011. Known for her fearless outspoken, outspoken reporter, especially around Uber, she was named one of Marie Claire's three women changing everything in 2014. And she was lauded for her unapologetic voice, which is summed up by her widely followed Twitter handle, Sarah Kuda. So with that, I'd like to say Sarah Welcome to Women at Work. That was an amazing intro. I feel like I can only <laughs> screw it up from here. I should just hang up. <laughs> no, stay with me. It's all good. So we're going to start with this whole patriarchy thing, Sarah. Talk to me about it and why you describe yourself as a former cool dude patriarchy enabler. Because oh, it was. Because I was. I mean, look, I, I know as a journalist, and I always tell my reporters who work for me this, if you get something wrong... You need to be the first to call yourself out because you are just giving someone a loaded gun to use against you otherwise. (laughs) So when I've been a reporter and I've gotten things wrong, like I'm the first to admit I've gotten wrong and I'm the first to call myself out. And the only thing, the thing that was an obvious ticking time bomb in this book, if I were to come out with a book about how everyone should be better feminists, Everyone who knew me in my 20s and 30s would be like, okay, uh, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, I had to own the role that I played in the patriarchy myself, but I think that was kind of part of the therapy that I went through in in doing this book. And look, as I say at one point in the book, one thing that allows me to kind of forgive myself and come to peace with it is that um, this was part of the generation I was in. Um, This is a very – it is a hallmark of the Gen X career woman 
that mm-hmm. they felt they had to become men in order to hack this system and work within a patriarchy. Gen X is sort of the lost feminist generation. The people who were a generation older, you know, really aggressively fought to get us, you know, a lot of the rights mm-hmm. that we took for granted. Um, and a generation younger, the millennials, are like so kick-ass. I mean, a lot of the Me Too stuff we're seeing, a lot of the whistleblowers, they are young women who are millennials who have no concept of paying their dues. Like all the things that business schools like Wharton <laughs> tell us are so difficult about millennials that there's no concept of paying their dues, that they feel entitled. That is great when it comes to millennial women because they're feminists who are demanding better. And Gen X women did not do that. We no. thought everything's been done well enough for us. We'll make incremental change. And until then, I need to, as an individual, like there's no linking arms. It was, I need, how as an individual do I hack this system to work within this world? And that, you know, I think lean in was like the ultimate, um, ultimate sort of battle cry for that. And I, and, and yeah. it was, you know, white, career centric, um, you know, career women who were Gen X. And that was our gender playbook. And I think we allowed ourselves, as you said in your opener, to feel shame about the term feminism. We, you know, that got twisted into man-hating. It wasn't about equality. And people would be like, well, no, I'm not a feminist. I don't want to come across the feminist. We felt, we walked right into that trap. (laughs) We all made ourselves into cool dudes. And we had to drink a lot. And we had to be okay with the strip club outings. And we had to not be offended. And we had to not cry. And in many cases, we had to pretend we either we didn't have children or put them off or not have them at all um, because of that. It was also a reflection, I think, because I'm part of that generation, too. And I talked with Josh Lebs about it, that we were the free to be you and me kids. And we really Mm -hmm. thought we were going into a different world. And this was something that our mothers fought for. And then. I actually didn't have my own awakening till I was in my mid-40s, and I started to talk to all these women in the workplace and realized there was a problem that nobody was saying out loud. Yeah, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of women I spoke to in reporting this book all said somewhere between 35 and 45 they discovered uh, that there was a problem, discovered the world was unfair, discovered a lot <laughs> of why they were being held back was gender-related, accepted it. And became feminist then. And I mean, you know, Gloria Steinman said, like, women get more radicalized as they get older. So some of this is kind of the universality of just being a woman in a patriarchy. Um, but it's also, I think, a very specific um, Gen X thing. And I think what's so powerful about this moment in time is it's the first time in my lifetime I've seen all the generations really aligned. I mean, you know, you mentioned the Women's March. I mean, you, you know, you had women, we've all seen pictures of women mm-hmm. who are older with these signs being like, how am I still marching for this? Like you have the women who have always <laughs> been feminist warriors who are continuing yes. to be. Um, you have the younger generation of millennials and the teen vogue generation who are incredibly agro-feminist. Um, you have kids like my daughter who's, Three who went on the march with me and is the most over-radicalized feminist you can possibly imagine. And then, you know, you have our lost generation that over the last year, things have gotten so bad that we've been shaken. You know, Handmaid's Tale blinders have been ripped off. It is like, this is the world you're in. And you have all of these groups aligned and on the same page and, you know, calling this stuff out. And, you know, no one's ashamed to be a feminist now. 
I want to ask you a specific question, though, about your former title that you've outgrown. And A, bravo for A, owning it. And I really appreciate your focusing in on this unique Gen X experience that we have with it. But there's something big in what you, in the term you used, which was patriarchy enabler. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if another aspect of it is that we grew up in an era where the second wave of feminism was growing, but it hadn't really changed everything. And we were still given all kinds of socialized messages about our, what, what our roles were supposed to be in society. And that some of these same Gen X women are the ones who didn't vote for a woman president because of their own biased thinking. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about a patriarchy. A patriarchy isn't just men. Like, we're all part of the patriarchy. It's a general organizing principle that gives men advantages over women. And that it is for a system that defaults toward male power and male influence. And a lot of women are complicit in, in a patriarchy, too. And we're all impacted by it. All of our thinking is impacted by it because every breath all of us have ever drawn has been in a patriarchy. And you don't even think about, like, the cues that you send to your children, even as a mother who's a feminist, even as, you know, for me, as a mother who is like, spent, you know, a year or so studying this and like over examining, (laughs) arguably, this morning, I my son is very gender fluid. And, you know, we live in San Francisco, and he, you know, wears dresses sometimes, wears pants sometimes. I mean, he has been raised in like, you know, without a thought that things are gender prescribed. And my daughter is like the most sort of like fearless badass. Like, I have so... (laughs) overthought and overthought how do I raise my kids in as much of a you know sort of gender bubble as I possibly can for as long as I can and just this morning my son came to me and he had these he's obsessed with uh with organs and digestive systems so I bought him these like stuffies that are each of the little organs and so he brought me one and he was like oh and this is heart and this is uterus and blah 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 and he was like and he's like do you think heart would be a boy or a girl and I was like well she's red and that's kind of a girl color and he just looks at me and goes mama there are no girl colors or boy colors and I'm like oh my god I just did it like I just did the very thing I'm telling like his teachers don't you dare put this in my son's head like because we all have drawn every breath in a patriarchy and it's in there you know it's burrowed in and I think this was one of the things that I didn't understand. But to me, the biggest personal aha and takeaway from this book was understanding the nature of benevolent sexism, because that's what this all comes down to. We think that sexism is like all of the stories that have been coming out in the last year. You know, women being denied promotions, women being treated horribly, women being catcalled, um, women being uh, sexually assaulted. Like this is what we think of when we think of unfair treatment and we think of a patriarchy, we think of sexism. But that's all hostile sexism. Mm-hmm. There's also benevolent sexism, which is just as important a tool for the patriarchy as hostile sexism. And it's more insidious because we usually don't see it and we don't know what's happening to us. So, now, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I'd absolutely tell you, oh, I hadn't faced you know, career debilitating sexism, you know, sure, I had to work harder to prove something. And there were times I'd be hit on and all that. But I would argue, I would largely say sexism had not held me back and had not affected my career. And that was true in my mind, because I was thinking of hostile sexism. I absolutely was a victim of benevolent sexism. For For people that haven't thought about benevolent sexism before, how do you define it? So benevolent, if you if you think of the uh, of the difference between misogyny and sexism. So sexism is kind of a general belief that the patriarchy is run on. Misogyny is 
the tool to enforce that belief. So when you hear about someone, you know, sexually assaulting a woman or, you know, think about the election, like some of the horrible things that were said Mm -hmm. about Hillary Clinton. It's like that's a woman that's used because a woman is step is trying to become president, which defies the nature, you know, the sort of sexist belief system that underlies stuff. And so that's kind of the difference between sexism and misogyny. Now, if you think about that in terms of benevolent and um, and hostile sexism, um, those are kind of the two weapons. So it's kind of like a mafia racket. Hostile <laughs> sexism punishes women, women who step out from the role they should be in. Benevolent sexism rewards them if they play the right role. And miss this cool dude patriarchy enabler and saying like oh yeah or you know a woman who's a queen bee in an office like she is the that's usually happening because of benevolent sexism she is being sent signals that this is a zero-sum thing there's Mm -hmm. one opportunity and if you want to prove you're one of the guys you've got to be harder on the other women now that woman may her career may be doing great in that super sexist culture but it's because she's a victim of benevolent sexism and they're kind of carving her off if you think about the phenomenon of white women voting for donald trump you know he did a great job of stoking up fears of economic anxiety of national security anxiety and in that situation studies have shown benevolent sexism becomes more um becomes more powerful because white women in these situations were say, you know, no one in their family has worked. They're really worried about the future. They look at it and think, okay, I'm scared about outsiders. I'm scared about immigrants. I'm scared about where the world is going. I'm scared about what America is now, but I have a place in this white protected world and it's not an equal place, but I have a protected place in it. Think about how Donald Trump describes women in his orbit. You know, he describes women when they work for him and make him money and dress and look a certain way. Then he's champions of them. It's benevolent sexism. And the misogyny is really about an anger at women, especially when it's challenging the sanctity of the patriarchy. Is that a fair mm-hmm. way of summarizing it? And that that desire to prevent the women from eroding the, the patriarchy is what provokes the benevolent or malevolent sexism. But yeah, either exactly. is intended to all, maintain the status quo. Right. And it all comes down to, I mean, there's a reason <laughs> uterus is in the title of the book. It all comes down to control over a woman's uterus <laughs> at, it, at some point in time. Whether that's denying her um, promotions and raises, if she becomes a mother and trying mm-hmm. to force her out of the workforce, if she becomes a mother, or it's as simple as, you know, laws around reproductive rights for women. Um, it is all of this battle because the, the only, if you think about this, the only reason that women have a role in the patriarchy that, that gives them a power position is being able to give birth. And that's why it's so terrifying. And there's a, a constant obsession in American culture with controlling it. And I should say, the other big shock for me in reporting this book is how uniquely American a lot of this is. I mean, mm-hmm. every country is a patriarchy. And yet ours is really insidious and weird and unique in ways a lot of ones aren't. For instance, um, you know, 40 percent of Americans, according to Pew, think it's bad for society if women work. Like, I actually think it's, it's a, you're not doing something good if you go out and fulfill, you know, your greatest sense of self, if you add to the economy, if you start a company to hire people, if you do all this stuff and you work really hard to put food on your kid's table. They don't think that's something to be proud of. They think that's something that's 
bad for society. And the thing that's that is interesting. That's not a common belief in other countries. No, and the thing that was so interesting about how you spelled this out in the book, and it really, you know, and I swim in the sea a lot, and it made me look at, connect the dots in a clearer way, that I had always defined misogyny as the hatred of women. Yep. Mm-hmm. When I look at little kids on the playground and I see who bullies another kid, when do kids get mean? It's because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. And that the hateful action towards women and the behavior that's misogynistic, you made it you made this great case for how what it's coming from is fear. Which mm-hmm. is why you can have men like Donald Trump say, I love women, but behave in a way that is totally um all that energy limits women's power and capacity unless it's serving him. Right. And you think about it, look at what we've been dealing with in Silicon Valley in the last year. Um, there's this real pressure that's being put on this toxic masculine bro culture. And there's a lot of people who are coming out and defending it. I mean, you look at the Google engineer who wrote the manifesto trying to back up that there was science that just said that white men were actually superior and that's why they have all this position of power. And you think, okay, well, that guy's like an alt-right sympathizer. That can't be normal. But then you have people like Paul Graham, who founded Y Combinator, one of the most powerful Mm -hmm. kingmakers in Silicon Valley, saying, well, this guy should be heard and you're just trying to silence him and kind of tacitly supporting that point of view. What is that about? It's about people like Paul Graham were told their entire life they succeeded because they're brilliant, that Silicon Valley is a meritocracy, that they took this, they earned it all themselves. And they're being confronted with the fact that they had a ton of privilege and other people were kept out. And everything they've told themselves about their own success may not be true. That is a deeply personal thing to be confronted with that questions you're standing in the world and your sense of achievement. Like, that is a deep and powerful thing to rock. Right, and, and it makes you feel... That's what we're seeing rocked right now. Exactly, and it makes you feel unbalanced and unsafe. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Sarah Lacey, editor-in-chief of Pando.com, and the author of A Uterus is a Feature, Not a Bug, The Working Woman's Guide to Overthrowing the Patriarchy. If you want to join in the conversation, is this provoking? You? Is this soothing you? What do you think about this discussion of the patriarchy? <laughs> Give us a call. We're at 1 844 Wharton. That's 844 942 7866. So you're, you're also tapping into something that is complex and I think confusing for a lot of people is that we have lots of men in our lives that we love men who have been our champions, men who have been our mentors, men who are our partners. And at the same time, we know that we're living within a patriarchy where some of this is conscious and some of this is unconscious. One of the reasons why I think we apologize for being feminist is we don't want to offend the men men in our world, and we don't want them to tune us out. Mm -hmm. How do we get Silicon Valley and our business cultures and our government to own this? Do we? Can we? Well, I mean, I think part of what you're describing is um, the divisions within feminism, and part of what you're describing is privilege. So the same way we talked about men like Paul Graham are worried because this is this assault and this this fear and who they are and what they've accomplished. Part of that fear is having what, what you've earned, what you have taken away from you. Mm-hmm. That's a fear out of a place of privilege. And I would argue that white women have the same kind of thing going on. I mean, this is why we don't see white women being 
really the you know the leaders of a lot of what we've seen in the in the last year in our country and why you know can you look at something like the Alabama election you know it's really African American mm-hmm. women who you know kept you know who who if you're like me you know, made that a, a historic and encouraging outcome um, and I think it's because of that position of privilege and you know it's the people who have you know, the least to lose and the least protection who are most willing to really look at and confront this. And so I think like this is why intersectionality is so important. And like the trend of intersectionality and feminism over the last year has been so important because white women really need to be held to account and need to continue as we go forward past a march past the Me Too movement, past things that have been galvanizing and unifying, like continue to hold white women accountable because women of privilege are kind of, you know, the the second most likely group to want to go back to the way things were. And well, it wasn't that bad. And maybe I can succeed. And it really has to be this kind of arm's length thing. And I think so I think the answer to that, getting back to your question, um, you know, what I've seen in the last year that I think is really encouraging in Silicon Valley is how much women who used to be divided are really coming together. There's all kinds of different, you know, either secret groups on Facebook or, you know, dinner groups or or different organizations where increasingly women are helping other women in these ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And you're almost seeing these like shadow networks appear that never were really there before. And I can tell you from my experience, I've been in Silicon Valley for 20 years. Up until the last couple years, I, I'd say 95% of my conversations were all with men. Like, I just mm-hmm. wasn't really around women, which I think is one thing that kept me in that sort of cool dude patriarchy-enabling phase. In the last year, um, towards the beginning of last year, I decided I was going to start doing a dinner series in my house. And so once a month, I have a group of about 100 founders and investors. And every month, I the first 14 to RSVP come to dinner at my house. So we have a single table conversation. Uh, and it's off the record. And, you know, everyone who's in the group, it's super private. It's, you know, no one really knows. People, so it's a totally a safe place. Like, yeah. A lot of men in Silicon Valley would absolutely, like, you know, have to go out and get adult diapers if they realized the conversations (laughs) that were happening and the women who were involved. But it's, you know, it has changed these women's dynamic with their world. First of all, it's given women this sense that, like, other women have their back. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful thing. It's critically important. The reason Queen Beeism flourishes is women don't believe that, is women believe it's a zero-sum game. And for me to succeed, you have to fail. And when women get together and help each other, it destroys that. And it doesn't allow us to be turned against each other. Absolutely. And, and it I think this helps you see other people's point of view more. Absolutely. I think this was where, if we, if we look at the last four to five years, you mentioned Lean In before. I credit Lean In as being the start of the third wave of feminism. And mm-hmm. it brought – and what was interesting is in the focus groups and the research I was doing, I was seeing the same problems um, start to foment, but under the surface and behind the scenes. And Lean In mm-hmm. brought it into a public discourse so that we could start to talk together using the same language, largely fueled by Marion Cooper's phenomenal research on things like bias and negotiation problems and the challenges we face in the work group, in the workplace, and the need to be together. And it's almost like you could watch a growing wave that grew from that into discussions around the country, increased dialogue in the news. Think about the New York Times now having a gender beat reporter and a gender editor. Mm -hmm. And then we wind up with 
the the confrontation that the election represented. It's almost like yeah. the third wave, brought, like almost like a splinter that festers. It, it brought out that there's this huge problem in our society that we really don't know how to wrestle with. Look, I think you're right. And I this is the big thing I credit Lean In with and the big thing I credit Cheryl in particular with is being willing to stand up and and talk about these these issues from her extreme position of power in Silicon Valley. Before Cheryl, like, I mean, you know, again, I've been a reporter out here for like 20 years. I have tried to talk to many, many women who are the, the exceptions about facing sexism, about motherhood, about some of this stuff, and they wouldn't have the conversation. They were so trapped in that cool dude Mm -hmm. benevolent sexism trap that I was too of you can't even acknowledge this you don't talk about this I mean you want to talk about real backlash and real change I think it was Ellen Powell's lawsuit and I'm telling you from my position in Silicon Valley at the time women women were throwing her under the bus left right and center there was an aggressive smear campaign against her personally in Silicon Valley and a lot of women I know took part in that, and they said things like, okay, we've all faced this, but you just can't bring a lawsuit. You're going to wind up making things worse for women. I mean, that was the crux and the crucible for are we going to be activists or are we going to continue to take this? And the women and that, that I sort of, heard that, that from. the next thing. And the women that I heard that from were also of our generation. Yeah. And the, and so I think, like, Lenin was great because Cheryl – stood up and talked about this and made it a topic um, and acknowledged what women go through trying to balance this. And, you know, I think there were really great things. I think what's even more exciting is that, you know, I remember reading Lena in when I was nine months pregnant with my daughter. So I always know exactly how many years ago it was written. And my daughter's <laughs> four now. So almost five years ago when Lena in came out, it was radical. Mm-hmm. A businesswoman in Silicon Valley, right? It was radical. And now it looks 1950s compared to where we are now because lean in is about going along with the system no lean in doesn't want anything overturned lean in wants you to have a 50 50 spouse and that's the answer well what if you're a single mom there's a lot of holes in the lean in argument and my issue with the 50 50 spouse thing i'm all for a man in your life to do laundry my issue with the 50 50 spouse thing is you are essentially opting, doubling down on a patriarchy, <laughs> right. negotiating with your husband to let you have a career. I think it actually doesn't represent as much progress, but I think that's because we've gotten to a place where the world has made us so much more radicalized. But I think you're right. I think it was that turning point where we acknowledged what we were feeling and started talking about Absolutely. it. And it was also a place where, interestingly, we started by saying, how do we navigate this instead of how we change this? And when we come back after our break, we're going to talk about how we change this one woman at a time. Stay with me. After the break, Sarah and I are going to continue this discussion. We'd love to take your questions. If you want to join in at 1-844-WHARTON, that's 844-942-7866. I'm Laura Zhao, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a couple minutes. XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today I'm talking with the amazing Sarah Lacey. Sarah's known for her fearless reporting of some of Silicon Valley's biggest stories. Over and over again, she calls out the bullies, whether it's an anonymous Twitter troll or a big-name CEO, and she uses her voice to champion other women when they come under fire. Sarah has a fantastic new book out, A Uterus is a Feature, Not a Bug, The Working Woman's Guide to Overthrowing the Patriarchy. In it, she blends her own story, how she transformed, was transformed by motherhood, from sexism denier to full-throated, fierce feminist in less than a decade's time. So with that, I'd like to say, Sarah, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you. Um, I want to start talking about the power of motherhood in changing your perspective. In the first half, we were talking about, you know, you were part of a generation of us who kind of denied the need to be a feminist, focused mm-hmm. on how to be equal, a cool dude. And you had a massive transformation that was not separate from your becoming a mother. What happened? <laughs> well, I think the God, so much stuff. I mean, anyone who's gone through the journey of motherhood knows it's like so hard to like sum up one thing that happened to you. Like, I know. I'm sorry. I think, I think the biggest and the immediate thing was I believed all of these lies that I was told about motherhood my entire life. I believed the lies of the opt out revolution that as soon as you held a baby in your arms, everything was cha- would change and you just couldn't understand it. And it would be this career killer. Your ambition would change. You wouldn't have the same hours to put in. You would be at this insurmountable disadvantage to anyone who wasn't a mother. These are the lies I was told like every day in my life, explicitly and implicitly. And I thought becoming a mother was the scariest thing I could do. I mean, I was someone who took a ton of career risk. I took a ton of safety risk. I, you know, reported from some of the most dangerous places on the planet. I, you know, quit really secure jobs because I wanted to go work at a startup or write a book or, you know, do something that put me in temporary like (laughs) debt. Like I, I was not someone who played it safe ever in my career, but I felt like becoming a mother was the biggest risk I'd ever taken in my life because I believe all these lies and I thought it risked me. I thought it risked who I was fundamentally, what achievement was for me, what my values were, why being a journalist was so important to me, why the truth was so important to me. You know, all of these things that were me, that were all I kind of had at the end of the day. And, And that would all be gone. That's what I was told. That's terrifying. Like that is absolutely <laughs> Yes, terrifying. and also being and told then, at then, the same time that you're fundamentally wrong whichever thing you choose. Yes. And and what happened was I finally got to a point. I decided I was going to do every single thing that I needed to do in my career to feel fulfilled before I had a child. That way if it was all true, I would have still had a fulfilling career. And I did. I jammed a massive, like, lifelong career, you know, my first 35 years. Like, my, I don't know, what, 15 years or so of being a journalist. I helped launch TechCrunch and build it, which we sold. I didn't launch it. I came in after, but I helped build it. And, you know, we sold that company, and it was very successful. Um, I worked at Business Week. I did cover stories. I traveled to like for 40 weeks throughout the emerging world. My second book was about, you know, the developing world. I wrote two books. I did television. I launched a show for Yahoo Finance. I mean, I did sort of check like every box of journalism I could check. And then I was like, okay, 
I am ready to take this risk now. And it was like those scenes in movies where you're diffusing a bomb and you cut the wire and you kind of hope and the the room doesn't explode. I was still (laughs) me. It was all total bullshit. (laughs) You weren't radically transformed into some other unambitious woman. (laughs) And so I think like the initial like right after I had my son shock was, I have been lied to, and women are being lied to constantly. And it was this massive juxtaposition between this thing that I took as absolute truth that was so not my experience. I got better in every way after having a child. I never would have had the confidence to become an entrepreneur after having child children. And I sure as hell thought that having like entrepreneurship would be the one thing that motherhood absolutely disqualified me for, you know, and there's, I detail a lot of data and a lot of studies in the book about why women do make more effective workers, why it does give your career a boost. And, you know, certainly there are women where, you know, they've had to make very difficult choices. If you, you know, Anne-Marie Slaughter, you know, wrote her sort of thing Mm -hmm. about how you couldn't have it all. And like, okay, if you're commuting, across several cities and you work in a highly structured government job and have teenagers who need you like if you have her exact life like maybe what you thought having it all was doesn't work for you it's not that it isn't hard and it's not that you won't have to make some changes but you know what struck me was like yes it's hard and that's why it makes you so good and that's why it is also so rewarding the same reason people run marathons which is also really hard yes. the same reason people do <laughs> ironman the same reason people start companies when they know the odds are stacked against but them look, and it's going to as... be really hard and then do another company why do we see those things as badass accomplishments that will make you better but we don't see working motherhood that way yeah and i have to say as a as a marathoner myself i find the two incredibly similar and it's the journey that's the most rewarding it's not really about the destiny um by the way it's weird when you think about it how much in startup culture everyone like co-ops the language of motherhood like they'll say like this is my baby or oh i'm getting into this again even you know i've i've deluded myself that it wasn't hard or i've given birth to this thing like if you talk they they co-opt this language of motherhood to describe starting a company but then think people who actually have gone through it can't do it it's bizarre i know it's totally ironic by the way we have a call from natalie um who's calling from oakland california natalie welcome to women at work thanks for listening and thanks for calling what's on your mind hi yeah um i have been listening to a women's leadership summit recently and they were talking a lot about the feminization of poverty that um you know when you're listening to you speak it's incredible but um i just was wondering if you could comment about this coupling of words you know there's so much gender parity going on and like we haven't we're obviously not closing the gap fast enough um but what about this feminization of poverty that's kind of happening nationwide like you know single mothers who work very hard for their children or to put you know food on the plate and being extremely marginalized and put in ever compromising situations it's just this feminization of poverty comment has really been on my mind and i was wondering if you could speak to that yeah, it's really been on my mind, too. And I, I'm sure you've seen some of the recent studies that show the uh, mortality rates uh, among women in poverty in our own country. I mean, it's really shocking. Like, I think when I um, actually got into in this book, 
the rise of single mothers in America. Um, 40% of American households have single or female breadwinner mothers. And part of that are people like me who are, you know, getting divorced or deciding to have children without a partner and feeling empowered that they can do it all. And that's wonderful. But it's also a lot of women who are are in the exact situation that you're talking about. And the thing that I find incredibly insidious that I think affluent single mothers uh, and white single mothers in particular need to wake up to is that while we're being judged less harshly by society, and there's even times I like, when I travel on airplanes with my kids, I have more people buy me free drinks and upgrades and all kinds of stuff because they're like, oh, you're a hardworking single mother. They see I don't have a ring on my finger. They see it's just me with Mm -hmm. two kids. And somehow I get the fatherhood bonus, too. Somehow I'm treated better. And yet, single mothers in poverty, the exact opposite. Over, If you can go back, and I I trace in my book a lot of the political rhetoric that frankly comes from both parties, um, more the GOP, but both parties – Black single mothers living in poverty are treated as if they are the problem. We have every ill in society. The way they are talked Mm. about and scapegoated and treated and, you know, the lack of any kind of social safety net there, the fact that they are vilified more than the men who left these situations and aren't taking care of these children, it's really horrifying. And it's almost as if our culture doesn't allow uh, the patriarchy to attack, you know, someone like Angelina Jolie. So it takes it out even more on the single moms in poverty who it can take it out on. And it, there's an amazing book that opened my eyes to so much of this that I have like was one of the most amazing transformative books I read while doing research called uh, Promises I Can Keep. And it was written by two anthropologists who studied this shift that happened in American demographics where the age of having your first child became younger than the age of marriage for the first time. And why, and so much of that came out of women living in poverty and why this, this is something that sort of puzzled demographers. They couldn't understand why women were making this choice to have children without being married in situations of extreme um, economic anxiety and insecurity. And they went and they lived in a couple poor communities with these women um, for years and, you know, basically asked them the questions and, and understood, you know, why in their life they, they were making these choices and what it was like to be those single moms living in poverty. And the findings were were absolutely like they were they were beautiful and heartbreaking and every and, and very, very different than how white middle class women um, parse and think about motherhood. I mean, uh, there and one thing is. Women in poor communities have more examples of people who are good mothers than good relationships. And so they feel like a lot of times the thing that will be give them love, the thing that will give them social standing, will give them redemption, it's having a child and doing everything they can to give their child a better life than they had. And it's almost like that's kind of the holy aspirational humanity bond, not so much finding a man and settling down. Like a lot of these women describe, oh, you know, I want to have my kids in my 20s. I want to put everything into that. That's me being a grown-up. That's me giving back to the world. That's me being selfless. 
Um, and then when I'm in my 40s, maybe I'll get married. And it's like a, it's kind of the opposite of how we think about it in sort of white middle class culture. Growing up, quote unquote, is moving out of your parents' house and getting married. But, oh, I'm going to put off children later because that seems like that'll give up my freedom. And Sarah, it's there's... really fascinating. And it made me have so much reverence for the mother-child bond that single moms in poverty have. I mean, these women had nothing and felt like that love from their children is what sustained them and kept them going. It's, I, you know, it's, I, I, I don't know that much <laughs> than that, other than like you should read this book because it'll, you'll get like even deeper down that rabbit hole. And if you're like me, like the big call to action is how do we as white affluent women who don't face that mounting stigma, who are being given more rights to live our, our families the way we want, how do we go to bat for those women? Because they're paying the price. And Sarah, you actually did talk about this in a book in a way that I found really important, which is that you, Sarah wrote a wonderful epilogue um, that talks about what do we do from here. And Natalie, I think one of the things is the what's going on in politics is incredibly important. Because if we take this kind of existing reality that we've got young women, sometimes girls, who are having children partly because they have no birth control, partly because they are sexually abused. And when it is a choice, it's because of an emotional need that they have. It's still limiting their ability to work full time and uh, diffusing their financial resources in an environment where there isn't adequate child care and they don't have the financial resources to then lift themselves out of poverty, where people who have the privilege of more economic stability and who are also not compelled to to become parents and responsible for other people too early, then have the opportunity to develop a skill and delay parenthood until it's financially viable. And so it's a system that feeds itself, that's both heartbreaking and pernicious. So, Natalie, I hope you found this interesting, and we're really thrilled yeah, that you I called did. us. Thank you. And thanks I'm for really listening. Great. It was great. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. So, Sarah, one of the things in the book that I really love that I also think is part and parcel of this is the question of who owns a uterus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, you, you mentioned this briefly when you were answering Natalie's question, but how and why our body parts have become the province of men around us and not our own. Could you talk to me a little bit about this? Yeah. And I mean, look, the weirdest part of this is last year, I don't know if you saw this story where it was like there was a an Oklahoma like law that was being passed that was, you know, going to curtail abortions more. And a, and a senator actually argued um, that, you know, it was, I mean, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but only slightly, where he said something like, I know, I know, you think these are actually your bodies, but once there's a child, you're now a host, and this isn't your body, and you have no domain over it anymore. And it's like, straight up Handmaid's Tale. I was going to say, it sounds it's, like something out of science fiction. It's horrendous. Like, this last year, a lawmaker in power was like, without shame making this argument. And this is sort of the fundamental disagreement of the patriarchy, is whether or not women own their bodies. And I believe they do. <laughs> right. That's a radical view <laughs> to a lot of people. And if you're the patriarchy and you believe the woman's role in your general system that's organized to benefit and give priority to men is to bear children, well, then the men should have say over that. 
And that also feeds into point of view. Right. And that also feeds into what you were talking before about this question of not just who owns your uterus, but who owns you. Um, and you wrote about this in the book. Are you going to be the good worker or the good mother? And the um, kind of persistent myth that you can't be both. Yeah. No, I've gotten so much better at everything since becoming a mother. And by the way, I am a great mother. And like I had a nanny for the first three years before my kids were in school. My kids are in kindergarten now. And like I don't have any regular child care. Um, You know, I have a great co-parent and I have a great boyfriend who does a lot. But, you know, I don't have a husband. I don't have any family nearby. And I'm an amazing mother. And, you know, my the value of my companies have increased. The value of my asset and net worth has increased. My profile has become bigger as, you know, a media personality. I mean, both have accelerated over the time I've been a mother. It is just a lie. So for women who are working in more traditional corporate work cultures... Um, one of the things that you wrote about beautifully was um, the maternal wall that happens in the workplace. Could you talk about mm-hmm. it a little bit and explain um, what it does and how we can confront it? Yeah, and it's and I should say the biggest uh, privilege that I have that you know I fully recognize is that I work for myself, and so it gives me a lot of flexibility that you know other people you know don't have when you work in a more corporate structured environment and and that is it all of this is much more of a challenge uh when, when that's the case um but look I, so I think there's a thing called the maternal wall which uh joan williams you know wrote amazingly about in her book uh, what works for women at work which is like one of the most iconic texts on sexism in the workplace that's ever been written um and it's basically you know you uh, this idea this belief it ties into this idea that about half our country think it's bad if women work. And it's this idea that you can either be a good employee and you have to be totally available to your boss at all times if you're going to be a good employee, or you can be a good mother. And being a good mother in our culture is being totally available to your children at all times. Again, really American thing, not a point of view in other parts of the world. Um, and so the idea is when you become a mother and you're working, that comes into conflict. And it, it's the sense that you can be one or the other, so you need to pick. And, you know, how do you think it's going to go down if you pick worker over being a mother? Like, everyone's really going to judge you then. Um, but then you just feel like a failure at work all the time if you pick mother and you feel weak and you feel like um, bound by your gender. And, and what's really insidious about the maternal wall to me, like the good news about the maternal wall is only 60 percent of women face this. You know, women like mm-hmm. me that work for themselves or work in different environments don't always face this in the same way. So there are other opportunities. There are other jobs and places you could work where you don't face this. I mean, the data shows that. But of those 60 percent of women who face it, it is the most overt form of sexism women face in the workplace. And the reason why is because people actually don't think it's sexist to deny women promotions and deny them work because they're mothers. Because if you believe you can only be a good mother if you're 100% available to your children, if you're in that half of America that believes it's bad for society if women work, you think you're doing that woman a favor by running her out of the workforce. People actually don't think it's sexism when they're doing it. And that's that benevolent sexism at work. Mm-hmm. And, and what's crazy about it is uh, it's, this like prove it again bias, which w- women face at a lot of different points in their career, they face when they come back 
after having a baby. It's this kind of tightrope of are you being too masculine or, or are you being too uh, feminine? It's a lot of these biases women face kind of all rolled into one. And what I find part- unique to America and particularly messed up is we're one of the only countries that doesn't give women leave. So women face this. 85% of women in America do not have any paid leave. So 85% of women face this maternal wall at their weakest possible moment when they have not been given time to recover from doing one of the most superhuman things any of our bodies are able to do. Without and a if doubt. if you want to drive women out of the workforce, a really effective way to do it is to make them come back immediately after having a child and make them confront and face all of that maternal bias right then. That it's almost the like a form way of to debilitate women. Yeah, predetermined torture. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I am your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Sarah Lacey, author of A Uterus is a Feature, Not a Bug, The Working Woman's Guide to Overthrowing the Patriarchy. If you have a question about what you're discussing or you want to join in for the last little stretch of the show, give us a call. We're at one 844 Wharton. That's 844-942-7866. So, Sarah, this is another thing that I really appreciated the way that you talked about it was this is how important leave is and the challenge of being given it and not taking it and what that mm-hmm. means for other women. How do you yeah. how do you help us understand that and what the costs and benefits are of not doing that and the reasons behind it? Yeah. And so and I say this as I did not take leave with my second child. And it's literally the only regret I have of the last like six or seven years of my life. Um, and I it was again, I sort of fell into this trap. So in America, and so like just jumping off of what I was saying a minute ago, um, it's this weird, it, it's it's a logical inconsistency in the patriarchy to say we don't think women should get leave as an as a basic entitlement of creating the next generation of human beings as an acknowledgement of what that does to you physically and emotionally and the work that's involved in that. It's this basic thing of both saying. We don't think that is a big enough deal that we will, as a society, allow you to recover from that and bond with your baby and adjust to being a mother. But we think that makes you so much weaker that you shouldn't be in the workforce and that you can't do anything and that it's going to be untenable. Like it's actually this logical inconsistency in the argument of the patriarchy. We're going to make you weaker because we expect you to be weaker. It's like on the one hand, we're saying, oh, well, that's not that big of a deal that you should get this guaranteed leave. But on the other hand, we're saying, oh, but that makes you so weak. And and so I think because that's so ingrained in our society, because it is only 15 percent of us who get this, when you're applying for a job, having paid maternity leave is a perk. Having parental Mm -hmm. leave either parent can take, wow, that's really rare, having you know, months of it, or even in the most extreme case, you know, Netflix allowing either parent to take a full year leave. I mean, this is as luxurious as you get in a benefits package. And because we think of taking leave as a benefit, we don't think it's something we're entitled to. And it's actually something that we should negotiate for. And I have to recommend Alison Downey's book, Here's the Plan, who says you've got to go into work knowing this. You do. And you also have to see it as this is not like extra vacation time where okay, <laughs> right. someone gives you unlimited vacation, but they put into the calculus, you know, uh, Western Protestant work ethic guilt. 
and they don't think that you're actually going to take that vacation because people will look at you kind of funny like okay you're not really supposed to take all the vacation that's just something we're so because we feel macho it's like leaving at five o'clock every day it's somehow we we have to prove something it's a test you know if we don't right. take it and then here's you know, and the- that's and that's what that's what parental leave has fallen into because we've looked at it as a benefit and something that is a luxury, not something women are entitled to have. And then here's the irony is that women then get so abused in this process, in this time of life, that that's why they leave work. They're not leaving work because they want to opt out and stay home with their kids. That overwhelming women become, especially talented, heavily recruited women, become a flight risk at that stage because the work environment makes work so awful. And so they leave and, and go someplace at a better. Particular time. Yeah. Yes. And it's also, um, yeah, I mean, look, you saw this with Google. I mean, they've been really open about when they had, you know, at the time, industry-leading um, parental leave, their retention of female executives was way higher. And that saved the company a lot of money. I mean, there is a clear business advantage for doing this. And just look at look at where female leaders in Silicon Valley have come from. Marissa Mayer, Susan Wojcicki, Sheryl Sandberg, all of the leading women Google, 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 right. because like, it's <laughs> surely not a perfect place. And Google has its issues just like anyone else. But they supported women. They gave them leave. They let them leave at five o'clock to pick up their kids. They, um, they gave them amazing benefits. Uh, Kim Scott, who's an amazing entrepreneur and author, mm-hmm. um, she had a high risk pregnancy at Google. And one, and she was being poached to become you know, in a major, major potential CEO roles of growing companies. And she stayed at Google because she was 40 and she was pregnant with twins and she had a high risk pregnancy. And Google was so accommodating to that and put her above her immediate view as, you know, as an economic unit. I mean, there's so much data that shows companies benefit from this. Without a doubt. And it's also a real indication of how you can put women into the pipeline and keep them there with this kind of constellation of strategies. Sarah, we're going to run out of time shortly. I am so excited to have had you on the show. Um, How can people find your work and the next things that you're up to? So really quickly, I mean, most important thing is to go to, you know, any bookseller, Amazon, whoever, and uh, and get a copy of this book. And if you run a company and you want me to come speak to your company, I'm doing like 30 or 40 of those things <laughs> in the next few months. I'll talk to all the women in your company. Meet me at com. Uh, Pando Daily is our investigative journalism company where we write about a lot of these issues and bro culture and what's really going on in Silicon Valley. Sarah. I'm also starting a new company called Chairman Mom. If you go to chairmanmom.com, you can find out about it there. That is fantastic. Sarah, thank you so much. This has been Women at Work on Sirius XM 111. I'm Laura Zarrow, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for listening and follow us on Business Radio 111.